Uh, today we're in a book of Ecclesiastes, and we're asking the question, does my life count? Does my life count? Uh, thank you again for the privilege to be here with you uh, during this time of transition, and we work together through this part of the journey of your church, and we consider this question, does my life count? We could subtitle it probably, uh, what really counts in my life and in this church? What really Counts. I don't remember where I first heard this illustration, but I like to use it as we start our thought for today. And it simply says that a while back there was a, an expert, because uh, I don't know what to think about an expert. You've heard a definition of an expert. An ex is a has-been, a spurts, a drip under pressure. So we're not sure about that. But anyway, an expert was talking about time management. And he was meeting with a group of business students. And uh, after giving his discussion for a little while, he reached under the desk, pulled out a wide mouth mason jar. He set it on the table, and then he took out a box of rocks, about the size of your fist, and he began putting those rocks into that mason jar. After he got about a dozen rocks in there and they, no more would fit, then he asked the class the question. He says, is this jar full? And they said, yes. So he reached under the desk and pulled out a little jar of gravel. He started pouring the gravel around the rocks and shaking it down and, until he got all the gravel he could in. And, and then he asked the question again, is this jar full? Someone said, probably not. <laughs> he reached under the desk, pulled out a jar of sand began to pour that sand in and shake it down. And, and finally he had all the sand he could put in it and he asked the question, is this jar full? Class said, no. They're catching on by now. So he reached under the desk and pulled out a jar of water. <clears throat> and he began to pour the water in until it was level full. And then he asked this question, what is the point of the illustration? Someone, I guess an eager beaver, wanted to get into it. And he said, well, I can tell you what it says. Talking about time management. What it says is that no matter how much you think you have in your life, there's always room to put a little bit more. And he said, no, that's not the point of the illustration at all. He said, the point is this. If you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in at all. Put the big rocks in first. What are some of the big rocks that we need to put into our life to make sure these things are in there above everything else? The things that really count, the things that make our lives count for the glory of God. Since I only have one life to live, what am I going to put in that jar of life? What is it really going to mean in terms of my life? What's it going to mean in terms of the ministry of North Florida Baptist Church? What's it going to mean to those around me who are looking at me and seeing what my life is all about as I profess Christ? Someone as well said, your life is God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift to God. That's pretty simple. We've heard about that through the years. Warren Wiersbe in his book, 
uh, the Bible exposition commentary says this, some people are only spending their lives, others are wasting their lives, a few are investing their lives. What are we investing our lives? To, to what do we put our attention and investment so that it really counts in life? What are the big rocks that we put into the life jar? You know Corey Ten Boom. You've heard of her. She was the author of The Hiding Place. The movie was made about uh, that experience in World War II and all the Jews. So many of the Jews were dying in the concentration camps and she and her sister were there. And, and just what an awful story that was. If you're ever in Washington and have the opportunity to go to the Holocaust Museum, I highly recommend it. It's history. It is amazing. Corey Ten Boom said this, the measure of life after all is not its duration, but its donation. What are we doing with it that's really going to count in our world? If our lives are count, we need to put some big rocks in it and make sure they're there. And to do that today, I want us to consider this from the perspective of the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and in his closing remarks, in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, he says this, the, conclu- or the end of the matter, All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God's going to bring those things out. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. So we're not going to put a dozen rocks in today. We only want to deal with the three that he deals with here in these last two verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. But I think these are big rocks and they help put all the other things into perspective in our life. So the first big rock is this, to fear God. All has been heard. The end of the matter is here. Fear God. Fear God. That is it. The fear of the Lord. A humble reverence and respect for who God is, what He does, what He says, how He directs life. Just the magnitude of the Creator God when we realize who He is and the power that He has. Power of life and death. Power to give life. We sang about it just a few minutes ago. The power He had to go and take our sin and die with it on the cross and then raise it back in life. And He says, I have the power of sin and death and life and all is in My hand. Everything is here. I can forgive sin. I can cleanse you from sin. I can give you life. Or come the end of life, I can bring judgment against you because you have missed it. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. When we understand who God is, we want to say, Lord, I I see you for who you are, and I reverence you. I bring my life into subjection to you. I respect you. And today, I put my life in your hands. That's what it means to fear God. Proverbs picks up this theme very early in its pages when the writer says, the fear of the Lord in 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You want to know stuff? Fear God. You want to understand things for what they really are? Fear God. Put it in His hands. He's the Creator. He made it all. Fear God. 
Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil when we understand evil for what it is and what it does and wickedness and what it does and how it destroys life. And not only life here and families and relationships, but it destroys us forever and forever and forever. Separated from God after we leave this life in death, when we understand what it is, he says, when we fear God and understand Him, then we will hate evil because we know what it does. It's a destroyer. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom. We want to be wise. We want to know how to handle life. We want to know what to do with life. And he says, you want to know what to do with life? Fear God. He's the one who knows. And when you trust him, his wisdom is sufficient for you. And then you can live in wisdom. Proverbs ten twenty seven. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. We like that. We like that one prolongs life. I can promise you life is done much better with God in it than without. Too many people destroy their lives because they get into the evil and the the side issues of life and the world that, that says, oh, come go this way. No, no, no. Go with God. You'll be glad that you did. It prolongs life. Prolongs life. Proverbs 19, 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Not just life here, but life eternal. We've gone out of this life and we begin to realize what life really is in the presence of God. Man, what an amazing thing. The fear of the Lord. And there are others, but moving on to the New Testament, we find the Apostle Paul uh, picks up this theme and he gives us this admonition in light of the fact that he says we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's all the born-again people. We're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He says this in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, since that's true, we're going to give an account of our life. And what did we do with it? Does our life count? He says, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. Now, what is it for that because of our fear of the Lord, we persuade men? What are we persuading them about? He answers it in 2 Corinthians 5.20 when he says, Therefore, since all these things are true, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Bow on your heart, recognizing that He is the Creator. He is God. He is the one who loves us. He is the one who, is, who has the ability to forgive us of our sins and write not guilty as he becomes our judge over our life because Jesus took our sins for us and died for us that we could have eternal life. He said, because of that, why don't you put your life into his hands? Fear God, trust him, put your life in his hands. That's what he wants us to do. And he says, we're ambassadors. And what we're doing is saying, please, look at these things. Look at this truth. Understand who he is and trust him. You will be forever glad that you did. The most important big rock we'll put in the jar of our life is that big rock of the fear of the Lord. And say, oh God, I trust you. The choir a few minutes ago in Nicolette, you sang it so well. When it says, uh, this is uh, my, my, my sin list. A mile long. Oh, yeah, it is. 
It is, what, what, a, what an amazing, uh, our sin list, that long. Tommy said it a while ago. He said, I feel like that's mine. I, we agree with the Apostle Paul. I'm the chiefest of sinners. All of us look at ourselves and realize we're not perfect. God alone is. We have sinned, but Jesus died for us. Thank you, Lord. What a blessing that is. The big rock, the fear of the Lord. But another big rock is the live God's commandments. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, keep his commandments. Keep his commandments. If we say we trust the Lord, if we say, oh, I fear God. But we do not bring ourselves in subjection to who he is and his lordship and his godship as his word says to us. Then are we living the truth? I fear God. Lord, you are the one. You're the one who has the wisdom. You're the one who has the knowledge. You've given it to me. We've said it before here. That the Bible is not just a, a, a road map to heaven. It's the manual for life along the way. Homer Lindsay Jr. was pastor of First Baptist Church, Jacksonville, Florida, for many, many, many years. Many, many, many years. He wrote a book, a little booklet, that his wife used to teach new members as they joined the church, new member orientation class to First Baptist Church. And in that little book, he had a chapter about the Bible. And in that chapter, I used to have that book. I think I've misplaced it. But in that chapter on the Bible, he said this, probably 5% of the New Testament is written to help us to know how to be saved. And the other 95% written to those of us who believe to know what to do with life once we've been saved. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And so he says, keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. It's, it's logic. It just kind of flows together, if you will. If we believe that he is God and we're not, if we believe that he has the wisdom and we do not, if we believe that he has the knowledge and we do not, if we believe that he is true, then it stands to reason, logically speaking, that we ought to abide by what he says. Keep his commandments. The big rock of the fear of the Lord. The big rock of keeping his commandments. We don't want to be frauds. We want to be true to who he is and what he's told us to do in our life. And those rocks will see us through a long ways. You like the acrostic, I do too. Uh, B-I-B-L-E, basic instruction before leaving earth. That's what it's about. He's preparing us now for out there in the future when we get to be with him forever. But right now, we're in the training ground. And he says, live it out. Live it out as I have given it to you. Fear God. Put that rock in. Keep his commandments. Put that big rock in. And then he closes this chapter out by basically saying, trust God's judgment. Trust God's judgment. And we need to trust in that. And he says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. Romans 12, 16 tells us that God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. He's going to judge us through the standard of His Son, Jesus Christ. Guess who's not the standard? The pastor. Certainly the interim pastor is not the standard. Guess who's not the standard? Brother Larry, I hate to break it to you, buddy. 
It's not you. It's not us. Susie? Frank? It's not, it's not, it's not you. Dustin? It's not us, is it? The standard is Christ. Here's the one. And he says, I want to look at your life and I want to see everything, good or evil, whatever happened going in there. I'm going to judge it by the standard of Christ and his righteousness. In Acts chapter 17, he says, God is fixed today in which he will judge the world in righteousness. It's according to the character of the deed. How does it measure up against the will and the ways of God? That's what he said is going to happen. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to bring that to you. And we might think that we can hide things from God sometimes. So many folks do. I have a friend that used to preach it like this. He said, you know, uh, he would ask the question of the congregation. He said, how many, how many of you believe we have one God? Well, everybody's hand goes up, you know. We believe there's one God. And he said, I want to challenge that. Because he said, I'm afraid too many of us think there's more than one. There's one for Sunday morning when we're here. And man, we're in, we're in worship and and we're just doing all this and we're in Sunday school and we're reading our Bible and we're studying and we're praying and, and that God sees us and he's happy and, and we're happy and everything is great. But when we go out the door and we start living out in the workaday world and, and we have problem with that person down the way and we have that, that spirit and that attitude that begins to well up inside and, and makes me want to be a little bit more like this and the neighbor and their dog keeps me awake at night. And, you know, and the guy behind me is blowing his horn at the traffic light. But I don't want God to see that. So there's another God and he doesn't, he doesn't watch all this. He just sees me when I'm at church. He said, I don't know about that. He says he will do. He sees us in everything. And those of us who know the Lord understand that there is no place that we can go and be away from the presence of the Lord. Not at all. My mom gave me a Bible when I was in the Navy. And I threw it in the locker and kept it with me. And of course, then when I got saved on board ship, I told you about that last week. Picture of the church where I got saved was on the screen last week. Kind of an odd looking church. I have a picture of the forest all in my office at home. Sometimes I like to show people that and say, let me show you a picture of the church where I got saved. Got airplanes all over the top of it, but pretty neat. But I take that Bible out and I started reading it. And one day I was reading in Psalm 139. And when he's talking about, he said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I take the wings of the morning or the dawn, and if I dwell, the scripture said, in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will hold me, your right hand will lead me. And I'm going, wow, I'm out here in the middle of the sea. I can't even see land. But God is here. What an encouragement that was. We need to understand that God sees everything and he knows where we are regardless to where we are and he's never lost one at all. And he says, there's a time coming when I'm going to judge that. Wow. That gives us pause to think for a few minutes. We want to be ready and we want other people to be ready. We want the folks that we love to be ready. And we even want people that we don't maybe sometimes feel real close to. We want them to be ready too. The question we have to ask ourselves is this when we think about this. Is there anybody 
that you can think of or that I can think of right now that you really want to see them go to hell? Anybody? I doubt it. When we think about it and think about what it is, we don't want our worst enemy to spend eternity in hell. We want to see them come to Christ and be saved. That's what we pray for. That's what we live for. That's what we work for because we're children of God and we fear God and we want to keep his commandments. His commandments are not hard. Not hard to obey thou shalt not steal if you respect your neighbor. Not hard to obey thou shalt not kill if you care about people. It's not hard to not commit adultery if you understand God and love your wife or your husband, family. God's way of doing things. Time for judgment is coming. We want people to be ready. The Word of God says that we who are children of God are going to be at the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, where we will give account for what we've done, good or evil, he says, and we want to be ready. I love it when they sang a few minutes ago, the judge turned to me and said, I love you. The verdict, not guilty. Well, when I stand before the Lord and he looks at my life and he says, look at this. And I go, oh man. And then Jesus steps up and he says, but I died for his sin and he trusted me. And because of my blood covering his sin, the verdict is not guilty. Man, what a blessing. Praise God. I love that. I love that. But what about the others? What about people who have never trusted Christ? Those who do not have the fear of God in their eyes. They've not given their life to Him in trusting, saving faith. John 3, verse 17 and 18, the New King James translation says, For God did not send His world, His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That word condemn is a hard word. Judged, if you will. He didn't come here to pronounce judgment against us. He came here to save us. But look at what he says. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. He's already been judged and found to be wanting every one of us outside of Christ before we place our trust in Christ in the fear of God to bring our lives into submission to who he is as Savior of our from sin, Savior of our soul from sin. Until we bring there, we are already under the judgment of God, condemned eternally to spend eternity away from Him. He's condemned already because He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Every time we see that word name in the Bible, it means something. Names were given because they meant something in those days. Joshua, Savior, Jesus. Call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. So many names, so many names in the Bible. All with meaning, meaning. And he says when we have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What it means is we've not believed in the meaning of who He is, His person, His character, 
who he is. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the only begotten son of God. He's the one who came, God with us, Emmanuel, to live among us and experience life like we do and yet without sin so that he could take our sin and die with it on the cross so that our sin debt could be paid forever, the death for our sin paid forever and then took his life back in resurrection power so that we could have eternal life. And if we have not believed in that person who he is, then already, already we are condemned. You say, well, preacher, how did I get out of that? For God so loved the world. See, back it up a verse. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. The judgment of God is not a joke. People need to know that. We can live in such a way that they know that it's true and we really believe that people are going to answer for what they do in this life. Either we're going to stand at the bema and God's going to say, here you are. We bow on our knee and give account to God. And he says, hey, you trusted Jesus as Savior. Not guilty. Come on in. Enjoy eternal life with me. Man, what a joy. I was going to have to say, depart from me. I never knew you. All you did was whatever you wanted for yourself. Middle letter of sin is I. It's all about me. Not about you, God. Listen, it's not all about us. There will come a time when we'll understand that. It's all about him. Who he is and what he's done. Sure, we have a lot of loved ones, family and friends that we want to be sure that they have the big rocks in their life as well. That jar of life. The initial question was, does my life count? Does my life count? And we look at our, our life. We want to say, Lord, let me put that big rock of fear of God in there, in there first. Let me make sure that one is in there above everything else. And if it is, praise God, then it follows logically that I want to be about what you said I ought to be about. I'm going to do that. Lord, I know one day someone's going to pull the shroud. And when they do, I want to be ready. And Lord, I want others around me to be ready. And so I'm going to live my life and conduct myself in such a way that it can count. I don't want to waste it. I want to invest it in the glory of God. I don't want it just to be a span of time, of duration, But I want it to be a donation, first of all, to the Lord and then to others around me as I serve him. That's what we want our lives to be. In just a moment, we're going to pray and our musicians are going to come. They're going to be singing here. And as our musicians play and we sing, today if you're here and you would honestly say in your heart, I've never trusted Jesus to be my Savior. I can't say the fear of the Lord has gripped my heart to the point where I've said, Lord, forgive me of my sin and be my Savior. But if that's what you want today, you bow your heart before the Lord and say, Lord, it's me. I'm the one today. And I want you to come into my heart and forgive me of sin. And then as these people sing, there will be men down here to welcome you and if you would come and share that with them so that we can rejoice with you in what God is doing in your life today. We'd love to
to just know that someone in this place said yes to Jesus today, gave their life to him and joined the family. What a blessing that would be. Maybe you want to talk with someone about it a little bit more. They're here and ready. So as we share this invitation time, it's for you to come and and maybe take one of these men by the hand and say, could someone just share a little bit more personally with me what that means? How do I do that? They'll be happy to do that. I can promise you that. Or maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know, I'm already a born again believer and and, uh, I haven't decided where I'm going to plant my life in in service to God in, in a local church. But this is the place you feel God is calling you to. Then you come and share that with these men as well. They'll help you know how to do that. You can become a part of a great family of faith known as North Florida Baptist Church. I recommend it to you. I recommend it to you. And of course, the prayer altar is always open. You want to come and just take a moment here and talk with the Lord about something. Maybe someone you know that needs the Lord and you're going, Lord, I know that person and and that person bothers me. But I want to lift them up in prayer today. And God, if there's any way you want to use me to help that person, Lord, direct my thoughts, my heart, my steps, my words, my actions to help them along the way. Or maybe there's someone that's sick that you want to pray. Just whatever the need is that you want to pray about. Prayer altars always open.